All right, well, our plan in this lecture um, is to build upon the framework that we established last week. And that framework was that within the Scripture's historical meaning, there is a deeper uh, spiritual meaning. Okay, not above or behind or before or after, but within the historical meaning. Now, the reason that this is so is because all the scriptures, as we saw, are about the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ, the suffering and glory of the Messiah. So the apostles and what they're doing with the Old Testament aren't arbitrarily or capriciously reading Jesus into the scriptures, but they're discovering him there, right? So um, I read this quote last week, and I'd like to just put it again as a kind of a, uh, an entree into our further discussion. This is Ken Van Hooser. He says, The practice of reading the Old Testament as witnessing to Christ began not because the disciples had discovered a newfangled exegetical technique, right? Not because they discovered this fancy thing called allegory or spiritual interpretation and started using it. He says, but because Jesus told them something they did not know, namely that the scriptures were indeed about him. So remember that illustration we used. The Old Testament is like this giant chamber full of riches, but with a very dim light. And the Israelites were searching the scriptures and bumping into all these Christological patterns and prophecies and types and foreshadows, but they didn't know what they were until Christ came and the lights were turned on. And suddenly they can see the room for what's in it. So this process of finding Christ in the Old Testament isn't so much um, inventing or reading him into the scriptures as it is discovering him, right? They were told something, what does Van Hooser say there, that they didn't know. And what they didn't know was that the scriptures witnessed to Jesus, right? They were about him all along. So, Our aim is to take um, that apostolic grid and clarify it still more. So thus far, we just have the two senses, the historical sense of the Scripture, and then now the spiritual sense. And so tonight what we're going to do, you have something, Mike? Yeah, it does require a little bit integrity on the side of the interpreter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's reserve that for the apostles right now. <clears throat> let's not bring ourselves into the picture. Let's just say the apostles. We can say with some confidence that they're not reading Jesus into the Scripture, but discovering him, and we'll have to figure it out what it looks like for us. So uh, that's a good point. But we have those two, uh, uh, historical and the spiritual. And what we want to do tonight is take the spiritual sense and subdivide it into three senses, right? So we're going to talk about the Christological sense tonight, the moral sense of Scripture, which you guys will be very familiar with in the use of the Old Testament, and then the eschatological sense or the sense that refers to the last things. Now, let me clarify here. Um, we're not adding to the uh, another you know, three spiritual senses. All we're doing is taking that spiritual sense and parsing it out more carefully. So, and rather than explaining things, um, I just want to show you guys tonight. Because on a purely theoretical level, we did that last week, um, 
I think it's a little more boring. Um, this tends to feel more alien and suspicious than it really is. And I think by putting it to use, um, we'll also put to rest our concerns. And I'm confident that you'll find how we use this tonight is actually quite sound um, and a really good way to read the scriptures, um, and really not too far from how we handled the Old Testament already. So thus, our proving ground, as you guys can see on your handouts, and if you actually want to turn there in your Bibles, is going to be 1 Samuel 17. Um, and that is, of course, the story of David and Goliath. Um, let's see. You guys are very familiar with the story of David and Goliath, all uh, either through just popular culture or through the scriptures themselves. It's a very long chapter. It's 58 verses, so we're not going to read it. Um, we'll obviously cover the highlights there. But what I want to do is ask you at the end of this, um, on your own maybe tonight, is to read First Samuel 17 after we've gone through these various layers of interpretation. Okay, so First Samuel 17. Now what we want to do is read it initially according to its historical sense. Now feel free to interrupt me at any time with your own observations, questions, so on and so forth. Now, taken according to its historical or literal sense, the passage is already charged with meaning. Um, if you read through 1 Samuel 17, there's much to comment on. One is the description of Goliath's armor. Um, it's very detailed, and it seems very pointed for a reason. Um, there's also the terror of Israel's men, right? Goliath comes and he challenges them, and literally the whole army um, is terrified into uh, submission by Goliath. Um, we could also talk a lot about David's courage. Um, we could also talk about Saul's ill-fitting armor, right? I'm sure you guys have heard sermons before that uh, talk a lot about, you know, not putting on Saul's armor and then whatever sort of interpretation that's linked up to. Um, so what I'm trying to say is there's a lot there, but the main point of the passage can be summed up by recognizing some key details. Now, chief among them is that the battle is not just any battle. It's deliberately positioned as a contest, not between mere human armies, the Israelites and the Philistines, but the gods that stand behind them. It's a battle, right, not between merely uh, Russia and Ukraine, but Israel and its God and um, the Philistines and their God. So, so David knows this, right? So it's already charged with some theological weight to it. Look at verse 26. It says, Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for this man, or for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Right? So it's not one nation versus another. It's the armies of the living God, Yahweh, versus um, the Philistines and their God. So in a very real sense, Goliath and the Philistine army, army represent their God, Dagon, whom we've already count, encountered in 1 Samuel. We'll come to that in a minute. By contrast, Israel, in its cowardice, dishonors Yahweh, whom it represents, right? Goliath goes and taunts them. 
40 days and 40 nights, and David interprets it and says he's taunting the armies of the living God. So what it feels like is very reminiscent of the attempted entry into the promised land. You guys remember the story where seeing the Nephilim, the giants, the children of Israel said, were like grasshoppers in their eyes, right? So literally, a whole nation of Goliaths, and Israel goes to take the promised land, and they said, we're like grasshoppers, and they turned back, and they didn't trust in the word of the Lord, right? They didn't trust in God's power to deliver them. And so what happened was they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Again, interestingly enough, Goliath taunted the Israelites for 40 days. So we have a connection there. And another primary element to the story, besides this battle between two gods, is that David and Goliath are representatives for their armies. Goliath is called a champion, literally a man between the two. So he challenges Israel to a representative battle. Rather than spilling unnecessary blood, uh, things could be decided in one contest between Goliath and the man of Israel's choosing. So there you have Goliath um, as a representative of the nation or of the people of the Philistines. Now, in David's case, it's still more charged with meaning. If we back up a little bit in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, the king Saul goes out to battle and he disobeys an explicit command of the Lord and he has the kingdom removed from him. Remember when the prophet Samuel confronts him and uh, Saul's trying to repent and Samuel walks away and he grabs his robe and he tears it as Samuel's leaving and he says, essentially, just as you've torn this robe, so the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you and given it to someone better. That's 1 Samuel 15. Then 1 Samuel 16, uh, the prophet Samuel goes and what does he do? He anoints a new king. He goes to the house of Jesse, and um, he rejects all of his sons. The Lord does until finally he finds the last boy, not even there, out in the field. David comes, and he anoints him as the new king. Now, we're in our chapter, 1 Samuel 17, and what's Saul doing? He's inactive, right? Presumably trembling with the rest of the army, while the true king, David, steps to the fore to take on the blasphemer's challenge. So we see something, a very important story here being told about Israel's true king and who David is. So we have then uh, two armies and two representatives, and behind these representatives and their armies, their gods. Goliath, representing Dagon, is a terrifying figure, arrayed with all the implements of war, um, seemingly invincible. While David, standing for Yahweh, on the other hand, is but a boy who refuses um, the traditional armor and weaponry, preferring instead his sling and his stones. So the contrast is noted. Dagon, forceful, imposing, and awe-inspiring. And Yahweh, represented in David, diminutive, unassuming, and odd, right? And so look, David understands this. Look at verse uh, 45 now. It says, Then David said to the Philistines, 
You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. But this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Right? So you got to love David's confidence. Um, he says it's not about military prowess. It's not about being Goliath, any of these things. He says it's about the Lord, and he doesn't deliver by sword or, sword or spear. Anyway, David says that to Goliath's face, and that's exactly what happens. In all his manly power, Goliath is defeated by a boy who trusted in the Lord. David sank a stone into Goliath's forehead, and the passage says, uh, and this is a really important detail, he fell on his face to the ground. So David, first, first swing of his sling, right into Goliath's forehead, falls down, and it says he fell on his face to the ground. Now, the reason that's an interesting detail, and we don't want to miss it, is because, well, do you guys remember what happens to Dagon? The god of... Uh, that are the, the idol, Dagon, in First Samuel? What's that? Right. So, yeah, to fill in the details, um, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, right? Literally God's resting place that was in the tabernacle. They capture it, and they take it back as basically the spoils of war, a trophy into the temple of Dagon. And... The night passes, the next day, Dagon, well, what does the passage say? They find him, and it says he had fallen on his face to the ground. It's the very same wording. Goliath had fallen on his face to the ground as Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground. And do you guys remember what happened to Dagon when he fell down? His head fell off. The idol's head popped right off. And what does David do? He takes his sword after Goliath had fallen on his head to the ground and lops his head clean off. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing with Dagon, what's going to happen to Goliath. Now, if you put all that together, it's going to preach, right? That's, that's a really good sermon. There's a lot of edifying material um, already there in just the historical sense, right? We're not doing any spiritual reading. We're, we're not bringing in any New Testament realities, we're simply reading it according to the historical sense. And again, there's a lot of edifying stuff. We could talk about the upside-down victory of Yahweh, right? A theme that is so present in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, think of, um, why can't I remember his name? Um, you have too many people. you got 30,000, and you need, what does he bring it down to, 3,000? Gideon. Gideon, thank you, Gideon. Um, of course, the exodus of the Israelites, um, all these seemingly inconceivable odds where God delivers his people um, through these very strange means, right? Because the battle doesn't go to the strong, but it goes to the Lord. 
So we could talk about that, or we could talk about the apparent strength but actual weakness of Goliath, right? We talk about his pride, his presumption, that kind of thing. We could talk about the cowardice of Saul and the courage of David and et cetera and et cetera, and on and on we could go. There's so many good things to apply um, that are so encouraging for our lives. But operating strictly according to the historical sense of the passage we're obligated to stop there, right? Um, the historical sense. And to be honest, it doesn't leave us wanting. There's much to be had, as we've noted. But to stop there and not pursue the interpretive hints placed for us, and maybe you've already picked up on some of them, it leaves us without the heart of the passage. And that heart of the passage is Christ. He's the heart of the story, and now it's him that we want to turn. So before we get there, any questions about the historical sense and how we're using it? Does that is that pretty straightforward there? And I think that's what you'd find like the uh, the best of uh well, we'll get to some other stuff there. So let's now turn to this Christological element. And rather than me um kind of walking you through it and and maybe we'll need to do that, we'll find out. Um, let me just ask, if there is a Christological sense, how do we get there? Based on that literal reading of the passage, how do we get to Christ? Um, is it legitimate to get to Christ? And if we can, how so? I want to get your guys' thoughts there. Mike. Um, my thinking is, is that in the passages you gave for homework, yes. there were definite clues that were heavily spiritual things in there. Yes. There were some strange things that didn't make sense otherwise. Okay. This one, there's not. There, yeah, there's not any, like, weird details that would... So, like, um, Mike is saying that there were some details in... Let, let me use one from the, uh, from the Passover narrative. There was... If you read um, Exodus 12, God is very concerned about the Israelites not eating leaven... Um, and literally, if you have just any leaven on those seven days of celebrating the Passover, you're excommunicated from Israel. You're cut off. And it seems really, really strong, right, for leaven uh, to be the thing that would, okay, you're done. You're out of the covenant community. And obviously, the Old Testament recognizes that because from then on, leaven becomes what? A symbol of sin. And you find in 1 Corinthians 5, that's what the Apostle Paul does, where he's talking about excommunication of a certain notoriously sinful man in the church. He relates it to that passage. And he says, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so he says, let's celebrate our Passover, but let's get rid of the leaven of malice and wickedness. So he's talking about this this man and the boasting of the Corinthians. So he's he sees that, you know, that interesting detail. And obviously, there's there's interpretive hints. But what you're saying, Mike, there's no such hints here in this passage. Okay. Um, how would we get to Christ? Any thoughts? David's the new king. I'm sorry? David's the new king? David's the new king, right? I think that's probably the easiest one. Anybody else have anything else? Or want to venture a Christological interpretation? Okay, that's fine. All right. So... 
let's just go operating by the details that we've already pointed out. If we want to go David to Christ, Goliath to Satan, it's a relatively small jump. Because as Tom just said, David is the king. And what is he doing in here, in this battle? He's representing his people. He's the head of his people. And of course, he's the man to whom the messianic promise, 2 Samuel 7, would be made. Right? David, and this is very clear in the New Testament, is a type of Christ. Um, Jesus is called, again and again, the son of David. He's being given David's throne. He's connected to him um, intimately throughout the scriptures. So that connection is already there, right? We're not reading anything into it. It's there. And if we grant that connection, then it almost begs to be read in a Christological fashion. David's actions prefigure the actions of his greater son. And that, coupled with Dagon's, um, Goliath's association with Dagon, literally a demon, open wide, opens wide the door to see him as a prefiguration of the devil. So, so let's just, on the historical sense, it's a story about the new king being the king, right? Taking on Goliath and winning this incredible battle for his people. And again, it's charged with all this theological weight. But according to the spiritual sense, we'll say this is about the Messiah. This is about Christ and his victory over the devil. Let me show you this. I was just reading this on my own um, a couple of weeks ago, and I just happened upon it. it wasn't even for study. This is what Augustine says. David represented Christ as Goliath represented the devil. And when David laid Goliath low, he prefigured Christ who crushed the devil. But what is Christ who cuts down the devil? He is humility, the humility that slew pride. So you can see how he gets to humility, right? Humble David with his slings and stones before imposing prideful, boasting Goliath, right? That's a pretty easy interpretation. So before we move on, I want to take a step back and ask, how does that feel to you? Does that feel legitimate? Does that feel okay? Or does that feel, uh, I don't know. Tom? Sure. Okay, how so? Sure. Well, I think, well, how does Christ defeat the devil? Well, I think he defeats him on the cross. Well, how does he defeat him, though? He defeats him by being crucified. Uh, so I, I, I think the, the movement to humility is actually the right one. Um, and I think you can get there and be generous. Yes. But I, you need to I think so, yeah. Because, again, if you're associating him with David, what does David represent in that passage? Certainly courage, but I think also humility. And trusting in the battle to the Lord and not you know, the implements of war. Absolutely, that as well, that as well. So, Mike, your thought on it? 
Did that, what does it feel like to you? It doesn't jump out at you. Oh, it jumps out at me. I feel like it's like, that's Christ. Of course that's Christ. Yeah, yeah. And, and okay, so let's keep, let's keep moving a little bit. So now maybe I want to make some connections that might make this feel a little bit, uh, a little bit more appropriate. And I, we, need to move, we need to move quickly for time, so I'm going to skip a few. And uh, I want to get to, okay, let's get to this one. So, Goliath um, is associated, uh, he, he's a beast, he's, he's, a, he's a savage animal more than he is than a man, and part of what we would have showed to get here is that the description of uh, Goliath's armor is literally, he's, he wears scales, that's what they're called, they're called scales, and again, Dagon the, he's a fish. He's half man, half fish. The scales, right? The association of those two. So, and when David convinces Saul to let him take on Goliath, he does so by recounting his run-ins as a shepherd. Or let me read it here. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. So um, if we're trying to get to Christ and we don't just want to go David Christ, but we want to maybe make some more solid connections between, this is one of the places we would start. Because I think what we find in David's victory over beastly Goliath, it anticipates a vision in Daniel. And that's the one in, uh, if you're familiar, Daniel chapter 7. Um, in that passage, there's a specific character called one like the Son of Man, um, who claims his kingdom, right? He goes to his throne um, by defeating increasingly uh, violent and savage beasts, including, of course, like David says here, a lion and a bear. So he defeats these beastly kingdoms, and he claims his kingdom. And of course, we know from the passage, Jesus is the Son of Man. And connecting this all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, it's not a coincidence that Goliath dies from massive head trauma, right? He has the stone sunk into his head, and then David slices off his head just as the statue of Dagon before him. Now, both of those instances, the head trauma to Goliath, the severed head of Dagon, um, echo another passage, and it's the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, which is uh, there on the screen. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Literally, he shall crush you, is probably a better translation on the head, and you shall, uh, he shall bruise you, crush you on the hill. So the promised seed, the Messiah, will conquer the serpent by crushing his head. I think Bob mentioned that just early. Now David's victory, literally severing Goliath's head, I think begs to be read in that same sense of the Messiah's end-time victory when he'll crush the serpent's head forever. Again, but there's more to say, right? What does David do? He refuses to fight 
the battle according to, uh, we'll say, worldly means, right? According with the sword and the spear or using Saul's armor. And he prefers rather just to trust the Lord, right? And it seems a very easy connection to go Christ to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where the, P- Peter pulls out his sword, or there's the host of angels that will stand by him at his word, but he chooses not to. And he goes to battle, so to speak, unarmed and entirely vulnerable. And like David, Christ defeats the enemy by foolish means. He routs the devil, and the cross is the definitive defeat of the devil by his own apparent defeat. Right? He's crushed on the cross. So the proud devil go back to Augustine, is felled by the humble Christ. And also uh, in 1 Samuel 18, after uh, David severs Goliath's head and the army of Israel chases the army of the Philistines and routs them, in the next chapter, 18, Jonathan, who is the, the rightful king by physical descent, right? He saw his physical son. What he does is he takes his princely garb, his robe, and his armor, and he bestows it on David, right? So it's this acknowledgement of the transfer of authority. David does this victory, and, and in, in an amazing act of humility, uh, Jonathan gives him, you know, his princely apparatus. And then, uh, so after the enemy's defeated, there's a, a transfer of authority, and David is acknowledged as king, right? That smells a lot like Christ to me, who after he defeats Satan, is raised from the grave and ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he's enthroned. And also, do you guys remember the reward uh, that's promised to the one who defeats Goliath? He's going to be given a bride. He's going to be given a bride. Again, it sound, it's, it's Christ. He's given uh, the king's daughter, uh, uh, David is, and Christ has given his bride in battle. So, if we... Someone have a question? Oh, no. Okay. So, if we return to... Our lecture last week, we can flesh out those concepts a little more fully. Again, we said that Jesus is providentially hidden within the Old Testament scriptures. And part of what I'm wanting to do here is take away the sheepishness to read Christ, to see him as the fulfillment of these scriptures. Because that's kind of what we tried to lay down last week, that all the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, foreshadows Christ. And that this type of reading, there's not inherently any reading in. We're following the bread comes, crumbs back to Christ. So if we do that, right, and we see him as the one who's providentially anticipated um, in the scripture, this is how. You follow the, the historical meaning, and then once you've got a good base there, then you move to the spiritual meaning. And by moving from the spiritual or from the historical sense to the spiritual sense, um, we're simply following the hints already laid there in the text. Because it is about that historical situation, yes, but not merely so. On a deeper level, it prefigures the Savior who steps into the fray on our behalf and crushes the head of the serpent. So any questions there? Tom? Actually, I'm trying to connect the bread crumbs to dealing with somebody who doesn't believe. 
Sure. Well, that's his crucifixion. <laughs> that's Jesus' crucifixion, right? What else would it be? Unless that passage doesn't refer to Christ, what else could it possibly be? Yeah, but he was raised from the dead, and Satan was crushed for good. So, so yeah, I see. What, so, okay, well, so it feels like cherry-picking is what you're saying. Well, I guess I would ask the question is, to what extent would you grant the Holy Spirit room to do that kind of thing? Well, yeah, that's what I would say, right? So did you, did you get a chance to listen to the lecture last week? Okay, so I would say go back to that one first, because that, where we lay it out, where it's, you know, the, the whole theory of how and why the scriptures can be read in that manner. Micah, since you want to jump in here. Yes. Well, I think there's a very uh, delicate process there where you could cherry pick one verse out of isolation and say, pulling it from its context and kind of doing a bunch of fancy allegory and then saying, see, it relates to Christ, right? Um, generally, what I think is the right thing to do is to read it within its larger context, right? So again, like I could take the ten cheeses, or let's say I could take the, the three ephahs of flour and say, see, three, that's the Trinity. That feels arbitrary. But when you take First Samuel 17 as a whole, and you consider all the elements that are at work there, it seems to me it really does lend itself in that direction. Just like the Passover, certain elements you could probably say, okay, that seems weird uh, if you tried to pick out the details, but if you did pick the whole Passover narrative, it seems really like you'd almost have to turn a blind eye to the Christological interpretation. Well, I guess I'm going to agree with Tom a little bit. Uh, sure. There are some really clear ones in the Old Testament, you know, like the, the snake on the pole. Or Absolutely. And the uh, Passover, uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 9. Yeah. Isaiah 53, and there, there are some other that are clear. Sure. And now if we go and start pulling Christ out of all these elements that aren't so clear. Sure. Okay, well, what about the story of Joseph? Is Joseph a type of Christ? There's no mention of Joseph being a type of Christ in the New Testament. So his brothers, his brothers cast him out. He's in the pit. He comes out of the pit. Uh, he's raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, where he saves everybody. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. It's really hard not to see Joseph. Who, oh, he was also sold for, what, a, a menial amount of silver. Um, so I get the reticence to, to kind of do this, and I think some of them are forced, but I think you can do it, and I think it's entirely legitimate to do it. And that's been the whole point of the class, is that 
this kind of reading is available not just where the apostles do it, but to us as well. And in fact, as we'll see next week, the apostles do it basically everywhere. Um, if you catalog how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, this sort of thing is all over the place, and we'll do that historical survey. Laurel? Yes. Yes. Okay. And Joseph was part of that. Yes. And um, but we also know that throughout history, the nation of Israel had stood away from God and there's been there's been consequences and it's happened over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, why can't we just see that as look at the lessons, look at what God did to make sure that his plan was carried out? Even though the people strayed from him and so on and so forth, he kept working with his people. So we don't have to get there to make the passage mean anything. Or to well, it already means something. Yeah, I mean, to me, yeah. Well, to me that's that's a powerful statement. And it is, yes. Right. Yeah, so you can relate it through the preservation of Joseph and the preservation of Israel. Yeah, then it, and it extends toward Christ is in view there without kind of making yeah, Joseph to be a type of Christ. Yes. Well, so, so I would say, I, would, I think on the historical level, I think that's a great reading, and I agree with that reading. But I would just ask then, how do we understand Christ's words in post-resurrection in Luke 22? where he says he takes them through the law, the prophets, and the Psalms and says these refer to me. You, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they refer to me. So the question is how do, we, how do we understand that then? So I kind of sense this because I was going through the past ones and everyone was like nodding their head but I was like, you guys aren't there yet because so, now that I'm getting here it feels suspect. But that's, I don't think, the sense in which Christ is using it. So I think we would disagree about the interpretation there. Mike. But uh, what Christ could have been saying is that these specific ones refer to Sure, and that's the tact that some take. I think it's the wrong tact um, to just say these other parts. And Well, let me just get to that because we're leading into a good spot. So now that we talk about the moral sense, I'll address that specific question that uh, Laurel raised, that others have raised, is like, well, why can't we just, you know, like lessons? And so let's let's get into that. Okay, absolutely. God's providence, all these other different lessons, right, that we can grab from them. Now let me show you why 
when we read the Old Testament. We want to read through Christ first, then we get to the lessons, okay? Let me show you why that's important. So, and here's where I think the method that I'm arguing for shows its superiority to these other methods. Um, Quite simply, is because it doesn't make us the hero of the story. We're not the hero in any of these interpretations when you read the, the historical sense through Christ to then to us, right? It's Jesus is the story. So think about 1 Samuel 17. It's not primarily about us conquering our giants, right? Who's heard that sermon before? Um, rather, what it's about is the victory of Christ that he accomplished on behalf of his people. Now, it is about us. We don't want to deny that. But first, it's about Jesus and then about us in him. Okay? So, so here's, so for clarity's sake, right? Let me just rewind and we want to go to Christ first, then to us. What we typically do is read the Old Testament and go to us, right? So what I'm saying, Christ, then us. So this brings us now to the moral sense when I talk about us. And the order is important here. Um, Again, the Christological meaning always precedes the moral meaning. Now, again, let's tease that out. Most sermons, and who's heard a sermon on 1 Samuel 17, right? You guys have heard David and Goliath, okay. Most sermons resort to some form of allegory to make application. Again, which is not illegitimate. So take, for instance, Max Lucado, the, the, the very popular author. Some of you guys may have read this book. What odds do you give David against his giant? Better odds, perhaps, than you give yourself against yours. Your Goliath doesn't carry a sword or a shield. He brandishes blades of unemployment, abandonment, sexual abuse, or depression. Your giant doesn't parade up and down the hills of Elah. He prances through your office, your bedroom, your classroom. He brings bills you can't pay, grades you can't make, people you can't please, whiskey you can't resist, pornography you can't refuse, a career you can't escape, a past you can't shake, a future you can't face. Now, I don't intend to disparage Lucado's interpretation because I don't think it's illegitimate, um, and I think his instincts are right because ultimately a pastor or a writer or whoever uh, wants to, uh, rather than simply recover the history and find some sort of meaning, has to make some sort of allegorical association like the ones that Lucado makes here, right? Or, Or we could put it another way, right? Without allegory, we can't get to application. Or we cannot make application without allegory unless we're trying to teach it, is just like these are timeless principles or something like that. So let me show you what Peter Lightheart says. He says, as soon as we move from history to morality, we have already made a series of implicit allegorical equations. So right in, in, uh, in uh, Lucado's interpretation there, probably in the ones that you've heard, David equals the believer, Goliath equals whatever threatens us, Israel equals the church, and David's faith is a model for ours. So almost always, particular, particularly in our treatment of the narrative portions of the Old Testament, we resort to something like what Lightheart describes. Now, we'll, we'll just call this application, but implicit within that application 
is some sort of allegorical association, right? Just like I would say David equals Christ, you do the same thing when you put yourself in David's shoes. David equals the believer. So think of other portions of Scripture that we treat this similar way to make application. Israel's conquest of the promised land, when we read that, that equals, and I've heard these sermons a lot, and they're actually really helpful, our spiritual lives, right? They equal, you know, our conquest, our defeat of sin, so to speak. Um, Lot's wife, she, she looks back at the destruction of Sodom and she's turned to a pillar of salt. That equals the temptation to return to the former life. Again, that's allegory. Uh, or what about Nehemiah's restoration project to rebuild the temple? Um, we say that's, you know, when we want to have some building project for the church, we go to Nehemiah and we relate the two allegory, right? And on and on we could go. You have to do that. You have to make some sort of implicit allegorical assumption to get meaning, unless you're just going to teach the history, right? Unless you're just going to say, this is what happened, and here's a few principles, and let's move on. You have to do some sort of typological or allegorical association. Now, here's what I'm trying to say is that the extent to which we do that, um, we're being consistent with what the apostle says. So, I know everyone's like, well, that doesn't feel right. Well, well, look at what the apostle does here. Uh, a passage that we've appealed to many times, 1 Corinthians 10. The apostle Paul explains the typological and spiritual connections that he makes between the church. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Okay, they were written for them as an example, um, or they happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So there's two things we want to notice in what the Apostle Paul says. And let's just take a step back. Remember that 1 Corinthians 10 passage? What the Apostle Paul does is engages in spiritual interpretation. The rock was Christ, the manna was the bread of the Lord's Supper, and the water so on and so forth, right? He, he equates it to the situation of the church. He does spiritual reading. Now, um, the first thing that we want to pay attention to is that middle statement, he says, where they were written for our instruction, meaning the scriptures. So it speaks to the, the purpose of the scriptures, why they were written. And he says, ultimately, the Old Testament is written for the instruction of the church, for instruction in our righteousness until the end of the age. In other words, the scriptures aren't a mere history book from which we pluck principles to apply to our lives, but they apply to us more directly than that. They were written, what, for our instruction. They're more intimate than that. So take, for instance, let me just show you another passage, another few passages that say this same thing. This is first, or Romans 15.4. He says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So what was written about David and Goliath, what was written about Noah and the ark, what was written about Adam and Eve, so on and so forth, was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Or uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. 
Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but also, but for our sake also. So he says that statement referring to Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness, his faith, wasn't just written to him or for him, it was written for us, right? So maybe an illustration will help. There's one way of imagining the scripture and its particular books as a letter or a conversation between God and the people that it's addressed to, historically speaking. We, centuries later, are not essentially part of that conversation, but we're privileged to overhear it, right? We're, we're like a fly on the wall, right? The conversation happened then, and we have it recorded to us, and we get to overhear the conversation. But the passages that we just read from the Apostle Paul frame things differently. We... Um, are not addressed indirectly by Scripture, like the fly on the wall. He says, but more directly and intimately, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Again, uh, let me bring another passage into the conversation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. As to this salvation, the, prophesi- the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or the time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated, indicating as he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, right? They weren't serving themselves but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into." So, two things there. The prophets, on the one hand, wondered about their prophecies and what they referred to, which, as an aside, is another reason um, not to hold to the modern insistence of authorial intent as the sole meaning of the passage, because the prophets didn't even know they were writing, right? That doesn't make sense. But more to the point, he says, they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you, That is, their writings, though undeniably addressed to their times, are more properly addressed to the church throughout the ages, right? The scriptures are a letter addressed to us, right? We're the recipient, not merely the people that it was written to, historically speaking. So there's part one, they're written to us, but here's part two. This is how the scriptures are written to us. Let's go back to our verse. Now, these things happen to them as an example So, the Old Testament is addressed to us, the entire church, and its message is discerned by a form of reading that we call typology. Now, the apostle um, uses a word that translators here have rendered as example, but it doesn't do the original Greek justice. Um, In the Greek, it's the word tupos, and it can mean image or model or archetype or kind. So, you see how the original Greek word tupos carries more linguistic freight than simply example, right? You know, something can happen, you say, that's an example, but image, model, archetype, kind, that has more meaning to it. So, in its secular usage, this word tupos um, can mean a hollow mold for casting images, right? So, you pour in the hot metal into the mold and out comes the, 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 the image corresponding to the mold. Um, Also, a die for casting coins 
or an exact replica of an image and a carved or molded figure. Okay? So the Apostle Paul takes the Exodus narrative and he relates it to us and then he tells us what he's doing. These things happen to them as an example, as a tupos. Now, that ambiguity resolves um, elsewhere in the New Testament. Romans chapter four, chapter 5, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type, tupos, of him who was to come. So he says, Adam, he has meaning on his own, but he says he's a type of Christ. Adam derives his meaning from Christ rather than Christ from Adam. Adam is patterned, molded, cast after Christ, who was to come later and not the other way around. That's part of the reason why I want to start with Christ. I don't want to leave him at the end because he comes first. He's the archetype and Adam is the type, right? Um, Or take the letter of Hebrews, which reads in chapter 8, verse 5. He's speaking of the uh, implements of the temple. It says, "...who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things." Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern, two posts, which was shown to you on the mountain. So in other words, the tabernacle in general and its various liturgical implements in specific function as earthly copies of heavenly realities. So when Moses was on the mountain... He, he got to see heavenly realities. And then when he came down from the mountain, the tabernacle was patterned off of those heavenly realities. That's part of the reason why, um, well, if you read Hebrews, uh, Christ surpasses the tabernacle because he ascends into the real thing in heaven and not the copy here on earth. So that which is below is patterned on that which is above. And there are other instances where tupos is used, but all of them yield the same data, right? Um, And other words are used to communicate a similar idea. So the New Testament authors will use words like shadow, right? The law was a shadow of good things to come. Or they'll use copy, as we see there, or true, right? I'm the true vine. Um, The vine in the Old Testament is Israel. Jesus saying, I'm the true Israel. Um, So we kind of see what's going on there. Now, Michael Chase, uh, in his book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, very good book, um, he says, a biblical type is a person, office, place, institution, event, or thing in salvation history that anticipates, shares correspondences with, escalates towards, and resolves in its antitype. So, it's a very all-too-quick glossary on typology. Now, we'll come back to it um, in next week's lecture. For now, it's sufficient to point out that it's through typology how the Old Testament is addressed to us, right? When the apostles address the Old Testament, they do it through typology. Like we've seen the apostle do. Like, if you read how they use the Old Testament, this is what they're up to. So, back to our verse, 1 Corinthians ten eleven. These things happened to them as types, we might say, and they were written for our instruction. So, I want to open this up for some discussion here, but I want to get to that point that we were talking about. 
So that takes us back um, to the point we were making earlier about Lucado. The allegorical or typological reading, now those two terms are synonymous, um, that Max Lucado employs, again, that most interpreters employ, is entirely legitimate. Um, and, you know, I used to take exception with those things. That's what I was talking about, you can remember, in the very first lecture. I just think that's kind of an infantile way of reading Scripture, right? You're kind of, you know, you're not doing justice to it. But I think largely that's correct, and that's what we find the apostles up to. However, again, this brings us back to our original concern. That's a rather clunky and rustic use of typological reading. And again, the reason that we would criticize that type of allegorical association is because it makes the story essentially about them, us and Jesus is cut from the picture, right? He, he doesn't have anything to say, let's say, if we hold to the view that just, the, just those specific prophecies, well, then the rest of the Old Testament, Christ is cut from it, right? He's cut from it. So Peter Lightheart, he says the following. After all, if we compare ourselves with David... How much more should we compare David with his greater son? In fact, it is not clear how we can be, even begin to find ourselves in David's story unless we have already assumed that we are in the story of Jesus. Right? So, unless, unless we associate with David with his greater son, he says, again, I think that point is right. How can we even begin to find ourselves in David's story unless we've already assumed we're in Jesus' story? So we go, rather from David to us, we go David, Christ, us, his greater son, then us. So it's not that it's wrong uh, to typologically or allegorically associate ourselves with David and our problems with Goliath, but instead that we're making that connection too soon and that we're bypassing Jesus on the way. Because remember what we said last week, now, You don't have to go as far as I want to go with it. But the Old Testament, what Jesus says, it predicts his suffering and glory. And if it's about us, it's only about us through Christ because it's about him. So there is a particular order of interpretation. The historical sense gives rise to the Christological sense. And then the Christological sense, only once we get there, then we get to us. So, and if we get that order mixed up, and we cut Christ from the passage, it's to espouse a certain form of interpretive moralism. And here's the reason, right, that I really want to argue for going Christ than us. Because if Christ is removed from the picture, um, his grace and his mercy, um, his work on our behalf, I've determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, um, it becomes about our moral performance, So rather than preaching Christ from 1 Samuel 17, we end up preaching something, I think, of a works-based gospel. It becomes all about our moral effort, right? Be like David. Go out there and conquer like David. Be be the champion. Or um, same thing with Daniel, right? Go, Go be Daniel. Be like Daniel. But Christ is out of the picture. So let me read you another lengthy quote. I'll say a few more words and then... I'll open things up. He says, For this reason, 
Matthew Emerson, it's hard to see how face your giants or any such variant is an appropriate moral application. He says, we are decidedly not fighting a significant covenant battle as the Davidic king against the representative enemy of God. All this is accomplished in Christ Jesus. In fact, the only one element in the text that can be figuratively comparable to the church is not David, uh, but instead Israel's military. And the comparison is not one of imitation, but contrast. Unlike the armies of Israel, the church ought to put their confidence in their representative to win the battle for them, right? So if we go back, and we do, let's just say, right, the passage is about Christ, if you don't want to go there, but here's how I would make moral application to us now. Goliath is the enemy. We are the army, terrified. Who's going to fight their sin? Who's going to defeat that battle? Not me, not you. Christ steps into the picture. He's our conqueror who defeats Goliath by his cross. He destroys the enemy. The enemy is put in retreat. What's Colossians 2 say? He triumphs over the principalities and powers through the cross. He puts the enemy to the flight. And then what does the army do? Then they're emboldened and they pursue, presume, or pursue rather the, uh, the Philistine army and plunder their goods, right? So if we wanted to find ourselves in the passage that's where we'd find ourselves. You say in the church's mission, right? The enemy's been slain, and, and we're emboldened now to enter the fray and to plunder his goods, um, the enemy's goods, right? However you want to interpret that. Maybe men and women held in his power, uh, maybe, you, you know, claiming our lives back in righteousness, whatever. But you get the point. The decisive battle against the devil, against Goliath, is not ours to fight. Instead, the church is assigned mop-up duty after Christ has triumphed. So let me summarize. The passage's moral sense comes after the Christological sense. And the scriptures are about Jesus, the head, and they're about us, the body, in him, right? And that's the gospel pattern, right? It's, it's never you go do something. It's this is what Christ has done for you. Now you go act. Christ's work, then our work, right? The uh, what is it, the indicative imperative throughout the New Testament. Christ has been raised, go do this. Christ has done this, go do that, right? It's never, never starts with us. So uh, that would be my response to why we want to start with Christ and not just say, hey, it, let's just cut to the chase and get straight to us. So let me open up for questions. Naz. Yes. Right, and and that's where. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. Right. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, right. That's the difference of, again, like putting ourselves in the shoes of David and saying, okay, now go slay your giant. When Christ has already done that, right? right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, okay, so did I? I want to know, right? We had a lot of disagreement. I where where's the disagreement now? Is it still there? Is it heightened? Is it lessened? Mike, sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Sure. And that fits really well with David and Goliath. Goliath representing idolatry. Uh, well, hold on. Let me back up then, because you felt pretty emboldened to challenge my view. Let's get to idolatry. Show me. How do we get there? How is Goliath an idol or symbolizes that? Sure. A false god. Yeah. So he, David's defeating idolatry. Well, who, who really defeats idolatry? Sure. Well, so well, let's so let me back up. Right, so Dagon. Goliath is associated with Dagon. The question is, what does Dagon represent? Well, the Dagon is a false god, right? I, I, I think the connection Dagon to Christ is a lot easier, or Dag, I'm sorry, Dagon to the devil uh, is a lot easier to, to da- Dagon and idolatry. Of course, he's a false god, but it seems... Well, the, the ultimate problem in the Bible is not our sin. Before our sin, there's a, another enemy. It's not, not the ultimate problem. Before our sin, who causes man to sin? Who caused him? Who caused, who tempted man to sin? I, I believe it's, we do it so the, the Satan doesn't play a role in that. Who's the last enemy that's defeated in the Bible? Is it our sin or is it the devil? The devil's the devil's responsible. I agree. Our sin has absolutely been conquered, but that's inseparable from the conqueror of Satan, who, who's the, the father of all evil and all lies and everything wicked in the world. <laughs> no, I think he's the very real inspirer of sin. He's, he, you got to lop off his head first. What's that? Maybe something else. Somebody else would have tempted us, but if there were no Satan, it'd probably look a lot better than it does now, right? Tyler, what did you have to say? Going back to where Mike said, where is our sin in this story? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That 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 seems. That's what I would agree with. Yeah. Yeah, by making you cower in fear, right? Taunting you, taunting. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's again that's the tact I would take, right? Like Satan, and and you know, gloating over the people of God. He's the accuser of the brethren. Aaron. Yeah. Well, that's the distinction between the historical sense and the spiritual sense. Right. So, it's a real distinction. A distinction, but I think what I'm saying is that Jesus is, those stories are a foreshadow of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. All the scriptures. Yeah, and that's, ex- ex- that's exactly what I'm trying to say, right? That this is pointing toward what Christ will come to do. Tyler. And, and that's the point, right? That's the point we want to make, that Jesus is the archetype and all these other things are the type that look to him. Not, not reverse, right? It's not like these come first and then Jesus. Jesus was always first. He, he's, he's the Alpha and the Omega, and all these other things are providentially put that way to foreshadow. Go ahead, Laurel. Yes. They didn't have, I mean, the Holy Spirit came upon people and then left them. Right. Now we have the Holy Spirit as believers. So the passage that says, Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We don't have to fear Satan mm-hmm. as Christians. Yes. So you think you can't kind of retrospect, take the New Testament realities and and map them over the Old Testament? Well, so what I would argue there, Laurel, is that that presupposes too big of a distinction between the covenants. 
So when, when the Jewish people, well, when the Jewish people, I believe there is a distinction, but when the early Hebrews kind of were, you know, obviously against what the church was doing, the New Testament, so on and so forth, they were saying, like, look, there's, the discontinuity is so great. Like, these are not the same things, not the same religion. You can't claim these scriptures. The church fathers resorted to uh, the type of thing that the Apostle Paul was doing. It's through typology that they said, look, these things map onto each other. And that's the only way you can see it, is if you read things according to that Christological typology. Uh, Tom? Sure. So I think what I would say there is that what you call secondary application is allegory. Right. So, but right. Okay. So, two things. Uh, one, will you grant that that is a form of allegory? And then, two, if Max Lucado can do that and apply it directly to someone's life, isn't it entirely legitimate to do that first to Christ? And so if you want to call it allegory or secondary application, doesn't matter to me. It's essentially the same thing, I think. Right, so yeah, you're making the same Christological application, and so what you what you said, like the seminary level, I hardly think it's that. I, I think anyone can make that Christological association once you've been granted the 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 well the the keys to do it. You know, it's just we we're so averse to it. I think that that's not helpful ultimately. Hmm. Major implications of the Old Testament, major events of 
Yeah, and I probably would fall somewhere in the middle. Someone like Origin would do every verse, and that's like, oof, okay, I can't do go that far. But I would want to push it further than just, hey, look, David, he points to Christ and actually read some of those details in a spiritual manner. Uh, because I think, in my opinion, it's more edifying in that manner. Uh, anything else on that one, Mike? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe I didn't do a great job of presenting it, but man, I read that and I was like, "That's Christ!" Like, blew me away. Yeah, and he steps up into the into the role to do what no one else would. Yeah, so so <laughs> I thought I would resolve difficulties today, and I only stoked him up some more. So let me let me uh, let me maybe encourage then, because you know I went through this, and I was like, we did the first and second lectures, and everyone was nodding their heads, and I was like, okay, we're all on the same page, smooth sailing, um, but apparently not. So maybe go back to those and. Now having seen really what I'm uh, going for, if it makes sense. So let me close lastly by just talking about the last sense of Scripture. So if you're going to grant that a passage is about Christ, it also opens up to the future. Um, And I will move very quickly here, and then we'll get out. So um, Henry de Lubach says this, uh, that the hour of the universal restoration that God had spoken through the mouth of his holy prophets had not struck in the way it had been expected. A gap, op- a gap opened between the first and last comings. In that gap, the church would unfold its existence for an indeterminate period. So what he's saying there, and we can recognize this actually in the passage I just taught Sunday, right? They thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. It didn't. First it came in suffering on the cross, and then it will come later in glory. So what they saw as one event was in fact two events, Right? So the work of Christ is in this twofold pattern, right? Uh, first advent, second advent. And essentially, um, that gets built into this typological, Christological reading so that if it does speak to Christ in his work on the cross and what he, his initial defeat of the devil, it also speaks to the future element of it as well. Um, again, so let's just... Quickly, the quadriga, or what I'm calling the fourfold method, incarnates the New Testament's already, not yet, eschatology in hermeneutical practice. Allegory establishes the already, what Jesus accomplished in his first advent, while anagogy, which is just what we're calling eschatology, reminds us that at every point, an eschatological surplus is yet to come, right? So, again, we are saved we're being saved. Our sin is conquered. It's being conquered. Uh, we are redeemed. We will be redeemed later, right? There's the already not yet structure of our salvation. Um, so what we're saying then, there's always a surplus. And so look how this reads out in the Goliath passage. If you're willing to grant that that's Christ, well, he defeats Satan on the cross. But of course, we know 
and still alive and well. Um, but every last Goliath, so to speak, will lie decapitated at Christ's feet. Not merely Satan, but sin and death too, right? The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So we might say in the cross, and notice Goliath's death is two, twofold. He sunk the deadly stone into Goliath's head, and again, he comes soon um, in judgment, so to speak, with the sword of judgment to deliver the last blow. So you see, if you grant the Christological association initially, then it's very easy to just go to eschatology and talk about our hope in the future. If you do that with the Passover and Exodus 12, um, those kind of things, it, it's very intuitive. So um, <laughs> what we'll do uh, next week, I'm going to pray and we can talk amongst ourselves if we want to. What we'll do next week is I'm going to give you an Old Testament survey of just the types that the New Testament uses. And you'll see that that area is a lot broader than maybe what we imagined it to be. So, um, okay, let me do that. And if anybody needs to leave, they can leave and we can solve a conversation. Let's pray.